Welcome to the fifth episode of PH Pod Season 4. I'm your host, Kara Schmidt. The theme of this season is public health, health under the radar. Throughout the season of PH Pod, we will be discussing different public health issues, programs, policies that may not be well known or fully understood within the field of public health. Today, we will be continuing to look at censorship within the classroom. For the past three years, there has been an onslaught of state legislation introduced to limit teaching themes covering race, gender, history, sexuality, and identity in school-like settings. Policies restricting these teachings of these topics are commonly referred to as educational gag orders. Today I'm sitting down with Leah Watson, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's Racial Justice Program. Watson is a former high school teacher and her current focus with the ACLU is on classroom censorship efforts Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I've been really excited to kind of dive right into these topics. Me too. Thank you so much for the invitation. Of course. So just to get started, can you tell me what is an educational gag order? Sure. So educational gag order is a term that has been coined that basically refers to measures that limit instruction on certain topics. These educational gag orders really began in late 2020 or early 2021, we started to see them bubble up and they were designed to limit discussions of systemic racism and sexism. Mm -hmm. Since that time, we've seen an expansion to include all types of LGBTQ plus issues with the span of don't say gay bills. And so really the idea is that there are measures, primarily legislation, but also executive orders, um, attorney general opinions, school board resolutions that prohibit teachers from speaking about certain topics in the classroom. Instructors, it's not just K-12. So they operate essentially as a gag order. Mm -hmm. I do think when we think about educational gag orders or book banning, we definitely keep it more confined to the K through 12 space. But this is something that is affecting higher education as well. You know, what can and cannot be taught specifically at federal universities. Can you kind of walk me through that as well? Or Yes. So I'll just give a little bit of background. In 2020, you know, after the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, there was a brief racial reckoning in this country. And people were talking about racism in this country and the need for racial justice and anti-racism. And there was a lot of commitment that was discussed in education and workplaces, just in culture generally, about how our institutions could utilize anti-racist principles in order to defeat racism. And as I said, that happened very briefly. And as soon as that happened, and there was a lot of progress towards racial justice, there was also a backlash. And so it began with Executive Order 13950, which was an executive order signed by President Trump that identified a list of so-called divisive concepts. There were eight divisive concepts, and it prohibited federal contractors from providing services to the government that involved these concepts. It also prohibited the government from contracting with contractors who provide this on their own time to their employees. And so there was a lawsuit filed and a a judge issued a preliminary injunction that basically says you can't enforce the executive order nationwide. And shortly after that order was issued, President Biden took office and rescinded the executive order. So there was initially action on the federal level in workplaces. And then shortly after that, various federal 
senators and Congress representatives began to introduce legislation to do something similar on the federal level. With the election of 2020, that didn't gain a lot of steam. And so conservatives pivoted more to a state-based strategy that was designed to do the same things. And then we saw these educational gag orders introduced in a variety of ways, but especially through legislation starting in 2021. And it's really taken off. Now Mm -hmm. we've seen bills in over 40 states and measures passed in almost 20 states. And so it is something that's not necessarily limited to the South or one corner or the part of our country's geography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it does feel like the politicalization of the classroom has been increasing specifically since 2020. And there is now this kind of clear divide of what kids should or should not learn. You've kind of already touched on this, but can you walk me through why this all seems to be super present now and super present in the media? Um, A lot of legislation is occurring these past three years. Yeah, I I mean, I think that that's such a great question because you're right that the classroom has been at the center, really an apex of politics and political discussions in the last few years and election cycles. Mm -hmm. And that has been very intentional. You know, after the racial reckoning, when we say that there was a commitment to anti-racism in education And in workplaces, it materialized in a lot of ways. And the education context, you know, teachers were asking for anti-racism resources and they were utilizing methods that have been used since the 90s. But thinking about culturally responsive teaching methods or strategies that bring in the culture of students and allow them to build on their own experience. They were also talking about teaching from narratives that have previously largely been ignored. When I was in school, a lot of our historical narratives were from white men. And that has been the predominant voice that we've seen throughout education. And so bringing in narratives of BIPOC communities, of women, of other people who have not traditionally been represented were all steps that were being taken in addition to teaching about topics that hadn't been taught about previously, like the Tulsa race massacre or other Mm -hmm. incidents that happened. And the workplace side, there was more discussion of increasing DEI or ways of bringing people into the workplace who aren't traditionally represented there and lots of commitments from companies. So in the wake of that progress towards racial justice, we also saw a backlash where some conservatives, it's honestly just a vocal minority that that's majority of Americans want their students to learn about racism at school. And they want students to understand what racism was, why it's important, how they should relate to each other. And so we're dealing with a really small minority of people, but this small minority has made a lot of change. And they copied the methods that were used with the executive order 13950 and basically said, these are eight concepts that we have deemed to be divisive and cannot be taught at all in schools. And in so doing, they not only removed the additions that had been made post-racial reckoning, but they also attacked and removed core tenants that have been a part of education as we traditionally know it. Many people have grown up to have it with core text or topics that can no longer be taught and really putting teachers in such a hard position to accurately and truthfully portray our country's history and our country's reality today. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, going back to that concept of a vocal minority, I think the Washington Post had published an article a little while ago about how how 60% of book challenges come from 11 people. And one of these 11, they write a book challenge once a week. Like this is becoming people's full-time jobs and they are putting a lot of energy and dedication to these efforts to decide what kids can and cannot learn and what should or should not be in a classroom, which I find very interesting, you know, just to kind of echo that idea of a vocal minority. Yeah, I I mean, I think that that's such a a great point. And there is some research that's been done by Micah Pollack on this issue. And Dr. Pollack, basically, she overlaid looking at a map where the classroom censorship measures were the most fervent and had the most steam and overlaid that with a election map of the 2020 election and found a few things. One, the places where this fight was the strongest and people were pushing the hardest Mm -hmm. were the school districts where the percentage of white students who were enrolled in those school districts had dropped significantly by 18% or more. And so there was just the idea that with the demographics shifting, there is a small group of people who are trying to maintain power over schools as they see that slipping away as our country becomes more diverse. Mm. Additionally, she found that districts where these efforts were the strongest were also the districts that were hotly contested where no candidate won a majority of the presidential election. And so it really is just a small percentage. And I have Some stats for you. A 2022 study found that 87% of parents agree that lessons about the history of racism prepare students to build a better future for everyone, as opposed to lessons about racism are harmful to children. One 2021 study found that more than 70% of Americans agreed that high schools should teach the impacts of slavery and racism. Another 2021 study concluded that more than 60% of American parents want their kids to learn about the ongoing effects of slavery and racism as part of their education. So we're talking about a supermajority of parents who want their students to learn about these topics at schools. Schools are a place to learn substantive material, but also how to interact. And our Supreme Court has talked a lot about schools being as nurseries of democracy or thinking about the socialization of students at school too. Can you tell me how your experiences as a former high school teacher informs your current work as a senior staff attorney with the ACLU? Sure. So before I went to law school, I was a high school teacher. I taught world history and political science. And I would say for anyone who's ever been a teacher, I always say that it was my hardest job, but also my most rewarding job. And I can't imagine that ever changing. And so when I'm coming to this work, I'm First thinking as a teacher, as a functional matter, what does this mean? What would this mean for my world history students? What would this mean for my political science students? How could I teach my students information that they wanted to learn and that was required by my standards within this framework? And these educational gag orders have contributed to a broader culture of intimidation and fear. Mm -hmm. And it is very hard to think about doing the true service to your students while having these limitations. As a world history teacher, we had to teach about many of the topics that would come up in these divisive concepts, including about systemic racism. And I also taught about that in my political science class. 
you know, we're teaching about the amendments to the Constitution. There is no way to teach about the 14th Amendment without talking about the racism that was apparent in American society because we had the 13th Amendment freeing enslaved people. Why do we need another constitutional amendment guaranteeing rights that should have been guaranteed to everyone? There is not a way to really explain that. And so I think about it from that standpoint of being in the classroom, but also understanding how schools work and what the norms in schools are. I always say no one becomes a teacher because they want to hurt kids. And that's certainly not to say that all teachers are perfect, but, you know, they're in this field because they want to work with kids and kids have questions. My kids had a lot of questions about the subjects that I was teaching, but they're also processing the world around them and trying to build their own perspectives and understandings, which is why it's so important for them to be exposed to a variety of material. Teachers have been reporting in the wake of racially motivated violence in our country. Students are asking questions that they can't answer. When students ask, they have to say, I don't know, ask your parents, something like that. So there really is a thirst for knowledge and Being a teacher is something that you carry with you all the time and really makes me passionate about building procedures to allow teachers to teach in the ways that are pedagogically appropriate and age appropriate because they are professionals and there's a lot of professionals who are working in these fields, including librarians selecting age-appropriate books. And so I think it's been really helpful to see I can build on my experience as an attorney. Mm-hmm. So when thinking about these things, I do like to, to look at both sides of the argument. But what do people actually gain from this influx of, of book bans and educational gag orders? Like, what do people want to get out of these things? And conversely, how can these policies negatively impact the classroom? Sure. So what can be gained from educational gag orders is simply control. We see the ability to control not only what they're learning, but how they are learning it. In some instances, I'll use Florida, for example. Florida has a Stop Woke Act, and the Stop Woke Act limits instruction or training on systemic racism and sexism, both in K-12 classrooms, higher ed classrooms, and also workplaces. Mm -hmm. And in that instance, what is to be gained from the educational gag order is the ability to control what is taught in classrooms. There's also a, a provision of the law that controls how it is taught. So not only are you required to teach history, you can only teach it from one perspective that is deemed to be patriotic. And the reality is history involves really positive things, but it also involves negative things. And, you know, in an attempt to shield students from anything that is deemed to be unpatriotic, there's really a re-whitewashing of history. We see that with the standards. We see that with other instruction that is coming out of Florida. And so the ability to gain and shape the narrative, even where it's not at all accurate, is what is at stake. I think how these policies can negatively impact the classroom We can go on and on about this, but the reality is that students aren't receiving an accurate, fulsome education on issues that are important. They are being deprived of opportunities to learn about things that have happened in the distant past and recent history, but then also even when they are learning, there's 
some manipulation sometimes that has to happen or distortion in ways that I think are unfair to students. So I'll give a few examples. In Florida, with the African-American history standards, in order to produce what was deemed to be a so-called patriotic view or perspective, there's really been a distortion of history. And so history teachers were instructed to teach that the Declaration of Independence was structured to emancipate enslaved people. And that's just not true at all. So there we're risking the accuracy piece, but then there's also holes because where things are not able to be spun appropriately, they're often cut out. Mm -hmm. And so removal of historical events and a simplification of race and the complexities of race, but then also things that honestly just have very alarming consequences. There's a Florida standard that requires teachers to teach about the benefits that enslaved people had from slavery. And I think generally that is distasteful uh, or offensive to lots of people, myself included. We've also seen an idea that you have to teach both sides of everything, but how do you teach both sides of a genocide? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this has come up in Texas and other places where teachers are saying, you have to teach both sides of the Holocaust. Why was it good and why was it bad? And that's really not something that we should be teaching our students that they should celebrate. Um, So I think that there's just a lot of framing that is also lost. Mm -hmm. These measures are sold as attempts to avoid indoctrination, which is really a play on words because they're actually indoctrinating students to only one view. There is a lot of freedom in discussing these concepts and just dealing with the complexities, allowing students to sit with things they can't immediately process and teaching them how to teach critically, how to think critically. And then also going back to your question about my time as a teacher You learn that there's a hierarchy of learning skills. So at the bottom, you know, you have memorization and definitions just requiring your brain to remember something. But at the top, you have another level of analysis and evaluation that really prepares you for life in society. And so part of what these bills do is deprive teachers of the opportunity to push their students to the highest levels of learning because there is no opportunity for dissent. We're really limiting students to the perspective that has been approved by the government. And that really does a disservice. Yeah, I actually kind of wanted to talk about the new African-American history standards set by the Florida State Board of Education. And so maybe we could delve in a little bit deeper into how these teachings can be harmful. Sure. I mean, I think that in the effort to control what is said, there's really an effort to silence certain discussions and there's an effort to silence any critiques of institutions that have facilitated racism and sexism, but especially the ways that racism and sexism aren't isolated incidents. I've read a lot from conservatives on this point. I have not heard any conservative ever say that there is a threat of thinking that one person who lived three or 400 years ago was racist. That's not really what this is about. It's more so about the systemic nature and the ways that our life and structure and institutions have been built on notions of racism and sexism and continue to perpetuate them today. Mm -hmm. And so what you see in the educational gag orders or divisive concepts bills, the concepts are that someone due to their race or sex 
is inherently racist or sexist or is responsible for the actions of somebody else in their race or sex. And there's been a lot of discussion from conservatives in the media, on legislative floors, just in public fora about what they want to exclude from classrooms. They want to exclude discussions of implicit bias. They want to exclude discussions of unconscious bias, white privilege. There was also a lot of discussion about excluding Black Lives Matter or other social movements. And so in attempting to exclude that, you're not just excluding those specific concepts, but the divisive concept bills and other educational gag orders are worded very broadly that would really exclude discussions of race more generally, including classroom discussions of race that come up naturally and have always come up naturally in classrooms, like I was saying about the 14th Amendment, Mm. including the culturally responsive or relevant teaching methods that build upon the experiences of students. And so there's been a bit of maneuvering to try to make history fit this model that they want to employ. I mean, when I look at the African-American history standards and I see the declaration was written to free enslaved people, I know that's incorrect. Mm-hmm. But the danger here that is in 20 years, kids won't know. They won't know because their parents don't know because their parents weren't taught. And so there really is a lot at stake here. So it falls into a lot of buckets. There's what you learn is inaccurate. There's also an a huge gap in what people don't learn. And we were just starting to make progress towards this in 2020. But now there's been a retrenchment where people are pulling back perspectives of BIPOC people or narratives of women or people who haven't always been represented, but also talking about just some of the harder things that have happened. And in Florida, you can only teach from the perspective that America is patriotic and celebrating America and you can't critique any other things that have happened, but you still have to teach about African-American history. You just can only do it from our perspective. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more implications of this kind of conservative push in education outside of what is and is not being taught. Specifically uh, in Oklahoma, Governor Stitt removed DEI offices from all institutions in Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, I I think you raised a really good point, and this might be a great time for me to segue into some of the litigation that the ACLU is doing. We filed the first lawsuit in the country challenging an educational gag order in Oklahoma, and we challenged the law there, HB 1775, which has restrictions on K-12, but also higher ed as well. In the higher ed context there, one of the big things that happened was after the law that prohibited discussion of inclusive concepts in K-12 courses, but also in trainings in higher ed, that students at the University of Oklahoma, one of our plaintiffs, Bert, the Black Emergency Response Team, really led the push for a mandatory DEI orientation course after there were numerous racist incidents on campus from students and faculty. And after the law was passed, that course went from being mandatory to optional. And, you know, to your point about DEI offices being next to go with regard to continuing this push, we are also litigating a challenge in Florida to higher education portions of Florida Stop Woke Act. Mm -hmm. There, we received a preliminary order blocking the state from enforcing the higher ed 
portions of the Stop Woke Act, and that order has been appealed to the 11th Circuit. And so we have an oral argument on that before the 11th Circuit in April. But after we won the order blocking the state from enforcing the law, we saw SB 266, which was a bill that prohibits spending of state or federal funds on DEI and on campus organizations that are built or structured around the notion that America has been racist or ideology that conflicts with that so-called patriotic view. And so we are seeing a push more generally to limit DEI as a proxy for limiting the divisive concepts where litigation has, has shown that it can be successful. We're also litigating a challenge in New Hampshire to HB2, and that challenge is a K-12 challenge with some behalf of teachers. It's a consolidated challenge that involves two of the largest teachers unions, the AFT, American Federation of Teachers and National Education Association. And so we're involved in this litigation in some various stages and starting to see some success. Courts that look substantively at educational gag orders, and when they start to look at the divisive concepts, courts have found constitutional infirmities that they violate First Amendment rights of educators and students, but then also 14th Amendment rights because the laws are so vague that it's impossible for teachers to know what is prohibited and what is permissible under the law. And so we are still litigating these cases, but there are a lot of reasons outside of the ones that we've discussed before that these laws are problematic. And the broader chilling effect is that because they are written so broadly, there has been a silencing of instruction and discussions, really meaningful discussions about racism and sexism in courses. And those discussions benefit everyone. It disproportionately benefits BIPOC students, but all students benefit when they learn about these concepts in schools. And that's really underscores the importance of this work. Mm. I had the opportunity to sit down with Professor Christina Dobbs for this podcast, specifically looking at book bans. And one of the things that she had talked about was this idea of soft censorship. Because of this huge politicalization of the classroom, teachers don't even ask anymore. You know, they don't even kind of push back against things because they're afraid of controversy. So even if there is a specific book title that they wanted to teach, they might not ask because it's kind of a diversive topic and they just don't want to get in trouble. Yes. I, you're really describing something that is called chill. And that is basically saying like the impact of these measures is much further, much broader than the actual words that are included. Because we know that when anyone risk such severe consequences. We haven't talked about the consequences, but the consequences from educational gag orders can range from disciplinary action, like losing your job, to loss of your teacher's license. In the context of libraries, there have been some laws that have been passed that would criminalize the decision to include certain books by librarians, which we haven't seen before. There have been Bills introduced to record teachers in class, either live stream it or delay it so that people can try to catch them violating the law. Also, bills introduced that would allow any person 
not just parents, but anyone to come into a class to audit it and make sure that the teachers are complying. There's so much there and the risks are very severe. Teachers risk being sued. They risk also just being demonized in the media. In New Hampshire, Moms for Liberty, the New Hampshire chapter offered a bounty, $500 to the first person who caught a teacher violating the educational gag order, HB2. The consequences cannot be overstated. And so when facing those consequences, if there is uncertainty about whether or not something is permissible under the law, teachers leave it out. And the stakes are are very high. And that chill is something that is actionable under the law. And it can be hard for teachers to stand up for what they think can be included, but they're not sure when the risks are so great. I think there's a lot of that uncertainty in this space of everything feels up in the air right now of what bills are going to be passed, what are the actual concrete consequences that are going to happen or will happen. I mean, to your earlier point about the politicalization of education, that is where we see it every single day in classrooms where teachers have to decide, can I teach this? Can I answer this? Maybe I should leave it out if we think it's going to get dicey. And also there have also been an increase in transparency bills. Now, I want to be very clear, the ACLU completely supports efforts for the government to be transparent. But these transparency bills aren't that. They're efforts by conservatives to intimidate teachers into not teaching material because they'll have to provide the material in advance. They'll have to provide copies, a script of what they have to say. Those are efforts to intimidate teachers. They're not actually to get transparency from the government. It's just another way to force teachers to leave things out that have been in education traditionally and also belong in education now. Well, as our time is dwindling down, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on here. I do have a thing where I like to end with my guests. Give me a sort of last sentence, and that can be whatever you want to talk about. It can be whatever you want to like leave our listeners with to end our conversation. I invite you to share it now. The fight against educational censorship is really a fight for our future. And this fight, whether you're a student, a parent, a concerned citizen, no matter who you are, this will touch you and people that you love and care about. And so I would just invite you to be involved there. And if you would like to learn more information, ACLU has a number of resources that I think would be great. But thank you for this opportunity. PHPod is a podcast brought to you by Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation on health and social justice. Every day we feature new articles about the state of the population. Join the conversation on social media and subscribe to the PHP Friday Roundup to receive your stories of the week delivered to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org. Thank you so much for listening in. See you guys next time.